This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of April 7th, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 126 of Defender Radio. This week's episode is the first of many to come that will focus on the subject of the utmost important to us, humane education. Compassion and respect for animals is something that is taught and learned. The lessons we have all learned on our own journeys to understanding stem from somewhere, be it in classrooms, books, movies, or even podcasts like this one. In episodes throughout the coming months, we will be taking a look at how humane education can grow impact our society, and why it matters. To kick off this ongoing theme, we're taking an adventure to the past. The National Museum of Animals and Society opened their doors last year in Los Angeles, California. Executive Director and Founder Carolyn Mullen will speak to the history of the museum, its foundations, and how it will help create a more humane world. We'll also be hearing from Dr. Carrie Cronin, a professor of visual arts and art history at Brock University. Dr. Cronin is the curator of an online exhibit with the National Museum of Animals and Society titled Be Kind, a visual history of humane education from 1880 to 1945. Dr. Cronin will explain the significance of this exhibit as well as her own path to discovering the history of humane education. Before we get started this week, we've got something to celebrate. Defender Radio News Due in large part to our ongoing campaigning, the community of Abbotsford in British Columbia has begun work on a program to prevent damage from beavers without lethal control. In an email to our Vancouver office, we learned that staff members will use basic tactics such as tree wrapping, culvert fencing, and scenting to control beaver activity. If all else fails, we will then be contacted for consultation before trapping is ever considered. Success stories like this are only possible with the help of our online supporters, our volunteers, and our donors. Learn how you can get involved at FurBearDefenders.com. Defender Radio News Carolyn Mullen had a dream, to build a place where humane education would get the recognition it requires. And that dream has come true. As the executive director and founder of the new National Museum of Animals and Society in Los Angeles, Carolyn works with experts from around the globe in displaying the history of animal welfare, including humane education. She joined us last week to tell us more about the museum and its exhibits. Why don't you tell me a bit about the history of the museum? Where did the idea to do this come from? Yeah, that's a really good question. So... I have experience working in museums. I mean, one of my first paid jobs internships was in middle school, and I was working at the Miami Science Museum. Um, you know, fast forward, I don't know, 20 years or something, and I'm at Farm Sanctuary and doing spring cleaning, and I come across this newsletter from the 1980s, and there's Gene Bauer, the founder of the organization, with this amazing mullet, and I just realized, you know, this is precious and how, I mean, are, are the, any of these materials getting preserved, whether it's at this organization or just on a more broad scale? And as I began doing research, I realized that there was no, um, you know, museum doing this for the animal protection movement, but you see it with civil rights, women's suffrage, the labor movement, even environmental history. So 
that's kind of how it got started. I mean, just the idea um, and then bringing it to fruition took quite a bit of time. Um, I left my position with the farm and uh, decided to get my feet wet in the museum world. And, you know, I worked at children's museums and art museums and science museums and local history museums. And so I kind of developed a really good um, founding and grounding in the museum world. So just last year, we opened our first facility in Los Angeles. And why did you choose Los Angeles? That's, um, you know, it's not the place people often will think of when it comes to a lot of social activism, but California has had a pretty rich history when it comes to animal welfare. Definitely. I think LA is pretty, I mean, California in general is fairly trend-setting. You see a lot of the first ballot initiatives come out of the state, a lot of the first vegan restaurants, first vegan ice cream shops. I mean, you name it, for free, you know, West Hollywood, which I'm sure your organization is very interested in. That all happens, of course, here. Um, I think it's partially a selfish choice. (laughs) Los Angeles is such a great place to live, sunny, beautiful weather year-round. It's one of the biggest metropolitan areas in the the world. So we get a lot of visitors to the museum internationally, whether it's Australia, Costa Rica, even Canada. Um, So it's a a great location, but I could see, you know, other types of museums similar to ours opening up in D.C. or New York or San Francisco. I mean, and ideally across the world, so... Yeah, I guess it's because California is one of the younger states. People don't often associate it with history. But the kind of history you look at isn't really what's normally taught in textbooks. Uh, How do you come up with sort of the the subject matter for talking about humane education? Where do you start? (laughs) That's a really good question. You know, because this hasn't been done before, I think everything is you know, new fertile territory for us. Um, Even the exhibit on humane education that we did, and I know that you interviewed the curator, Carrie Cronin, um, you know, creating humane education about humane education was kind of fun, and uh, some of the responses to to the curriculum was interesting. Um, Yeah, but it's definitely new every time, and luckily we have a great uh, resource with our advisory council, which is you know, filled with uh, people from around the globe with, you know, some wonderful accolades to their names, um, among them historians. So we're able to create some pretty great curriculum that is modern and, but at the same time, preserving that history. I guess a question that I have to ask uh, as a bit of a history junkie myself is when we talk about, for instance, American history, uh, and we hear about the Civil War, the Boston Tea Party, these large events that really shaped a nation. But when we talk about humane education, that's very much an ideal that has grown over a long, long period of time. So why is it important to focus on it as a society now in the 21st century? Well, there's that old adage, you know, that, you know, children are the future. And, you know, if, if we want to have a brighter future, it's in the hands of our children. And so investing that time and that energy um, in our in our kids and in our youth, I think, is incredibly important. And humane education has a rocky path. And it's amazing that it doesn't have a stronger force in today's or a stronger hold in today's world. And I'm sure Carrie Cronin talked about this, you know, but humane education was incredibly popular in the 1800s and the 1900s. I mean, you saw groups like the Bands of Mercy all over the country. I mean, to the tune of tens of thousands of organizations akin to the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. So it's just, I mean, it. You know, I get goosebumps just thinking about how many kids were taking that pledge to be kind to animals and would spend their afternoons or their weekends working on um, things for the club. And today, you know, I think we're we're starting to get 
back to, to where we were, you know, 100, 150 years ago, thanks to efforts like the Institute for Humane Education. And now they're certifying graduate um, students in humane education. And so I, I think it, it's slightly changing, um, you know, but I wish it was faster. Why do you think it's been cyclical like that? Uh, I, I know history often repeats itself, but on something of this scale, uh, I would think we ordinarily see sort of a linear movement. Again, you look at slavery, uh, you look at aboriginal rights, you look at uh, women's rights, issues like that. Sort of once you hit that precipice, um, it doesn't just stop, but it kind of changes direction forever. Why do you think with humane education and even just the acknowledgement of the issues in that subject, uh, that it's taking sort of a, a rebirth almost of the entire movement to get it back out there? That's a really good question. You know, I know humane education was interrupted surely by World War One and World War Two, And I mean, that was the case for the entire movement. I mean, people were working on animal issues all over the place and it just wasn't humane education. But energies were re-diverted into wartime efforts. And, you know, there were animals present in the wars, whether they were horses or dogs. Um, and so that's where our attention and our efforts and our energies and our monies went. Um, and I think, you know, we're getting back to humane education, but, you know, organizations are so pressured and to uphold their basic mission and rescuing, you know, providing direct rescue for animals or direct care at a sanctuary. And so humane education tends to fall to the wayside. But really what I would love to see is, you know, something akin to um, Women's History Month or, you know, Black History Month or, you know, Cesar Chavez Day. I think our movement has that same history and, you know, getting it introduced at an elementary level, just saying, hey, this month we're focusing on animal protection. And do you know Henry Berg? Do you know Caroline Earl White? What did they do? What's town seizure? That no longer exists. How did they accomplish that? So just recognizing our movement on that level and, and ingraining it into students, I think, um, is essential. You know, for, for example, recycling wasn't a big thing among my mother's generation, but, you know, they ingrained it in us as children, like, hey, here are the recycling bins in the classroom, at the cafeteria, and it just becomes second nature. It's like, oh, of course, everyone recycles. So it's generational, and I think if we invested our time and our money into students that way, I mean, we'd be in a much different place. Well, and speaking of students, I see that you do have um – individual curriculums and classroom experiences for students. What's the reaction been like from teachers, parents, and students themselves? Yeah, we've had a really good reaction. And, you know, our humane education program is pretty diverse. I mean, we go and we've reached out to preschoolers. We've gone into universities and um, while we do offer these uh, different programs, whether it's a historical look at animal protection or career day is widely popular, um, I think everyone comes out really impressed and shocked at the variety of issues or the variety of animals or just the new things in science or what have you. But career day, I think, is one of my favorite events to do. Uh, you know, most people, or especially children, you know, and I'm, I'm a case in point, you know, people would ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you automatically think veterinarian. How else do you help animals? But I think in this day and age, that's not the case. I mean, if you're artistic, you can be a graphic designer and create the newsletters that these organizations use. 
to to get the word out. And, you know, if you're a photographer like Joanne MacArthur, who our next exhibit is centering around, you know, you're documenting the atrocities that happen to animals. And, you know, that's an important part of all of this is bearing witness. Whether you're an author or a writer or you enjoy writing, creating a novel or writing articles for online publications or the Huffington Post. I mean, there's so many ways to help animals. And I think that's one of my favorite things to do with students is, is talk about that. Well, and speaking of Joanne MacArthur's work, um, one of the things I find interesting in a lot of historical perspectives is how we easily gloss over the mistakes we've made. Uh, an example of that in Canada, we're very, very proud of celebrating the Underground Railroad, which you likely know was um, a big part of our history in helping um, blacks escape from America uh, during uh, persecution. But we skip over a lot of the other things, a lot of the racism, a lot of the hatred. Um, as a journalist, I actually wrote about the KKK trying to kill someone in my hometown uh, that people almost wouldn't believe happened if I didn't have the original newspaper archives. And when it comes to uh, animal welfare, there's also some dark parts in the past. Um, for example, uh, Hal Herzog, a professor of anthropology I know, wrote about one person, I can't remember the, the individual's name, who in order to measure animal intelligence so we would not test on animals, tested on animals. Our own organization in the 1950s and 60s actually funded trap development in trying to find a humane trap. Um, you know, it's a lot of these little things that we often don't talk about, but did play a big role. So is that something that you take into account in your exhibits and in your lessons? We haven't today, but it's incredibly fascinating um, to hear what you're telling me because I had no idea. And I think that's the biggest hurdle for this museum is documenting history that hasn't generally been documented. Um, and I have no doubt that there's even more sorted history. And I know that some of the anti-vivisectionist groups um, you know, they may have a philosophy where they encourage, you know, more humane animal testing. And, and so how do you, you know, how do you feel comfortable with that as a donor and as a supporter? And so, I don't know, it, it's a very tough, complicated uh, relationship that we have with animals, with each other in this movement, as organizations on that organizational level. And sure, it is something that we're we're documenting if we, if we can. And um, if anyone has, you know, this lead on a piece of history like you have regarding this trapping development, we're definitely uh, interested. So, you know, I encourage anyone and everyone to send, you know, those tidbits of history our way, or if there's anything that we could acquire for our collection, uh, you know, we're constantly on the lookout for artifacts, um, material for the archive or our library, and that goes not just for animal protection material, but what's occurring on the flip side, you know, what is the industry creating? And um, it's, it's quite shocking, the, the material that you can find. What is the dream? I mean, if you started this up last year, you're already clearly getting some success, getting some big names coming in for exhibits, getting a lot of online interest. What is the long-term goal of the museum? The long-term goal is to eventually open a permanent facility. What we have right now in Los Angeles is a great starter facility, but it by no means uh, accomplishes what we want to do. I, you know, we'd love to see ourselves in a 75,000 square foot building, a place where we can comfortably have permanent exhibitions, rotating exhibitions, and not just on animal protection, but also regarding animal studies. So our 
you know, looking at our relationship with animals and how that's expressed through the arts or the humanities, literature, music even. Um, and also having classrooms. I think it would be wonderful to have, you know, troops of kids through the museum partaking in field trips or attending a summer camp, that sort of thing. A wonderful auditorium so we can do film screenings for large numbers of people and have workshops and conferences. And right now we're not able to do that because we are so small. But that that is a long-term goal, and I think we'll get there. It's just going to be a number of years. To learn more about the National Museum of Animals and Society, visit museumofanimals.org. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416-750-9453. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada... We're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities, one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing Keystone species. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. This is Defender Radio. It seems like spreading the concept of compassion for animals is a new battle. But you may be surprised to know that there's evidence showing these efforts stretch back to the 19th century. Dr. Kerry Cronin of Brock University is the curator of a new online exhibit, Be Kind, A Visual History of Humane Education, 1880-1945. Dr. Cronin joined us recently to tell us more about her exhibit. Uh, why don't you tell me a bit about yourself, your background in the arts? Yeah, sure. Um, I am an art historian, actually, not an artist. So my degree is in art history. And I've always been really interested in thinking about the ways in which images can be used to make social change. So um, my first book project that I published in 2011 looked at sort of the creation of ideas of environmentalism in the national parks. So how we define nature, how we define wildlife, how we define... Um, appropriate activities in those spaces. And I was sort of looking at how images 
kind of create these ideas of nature or who counts as wildlife, who doesn't, um, what dictates acceptable behaviors in these park spaces. So my current work on animals and animal rights and animal advocacy kind of grew out of that. Um, I started to think about how the way we think about animals really is shaped largely by visual representations. So how we encounter them, how we think about them, how we come to know about them um, is often through things like um, art or television programs or postcards if you're in a national park. Um, so I just started thinking more and more about how activists can sort of harness that power of the image and, and think about how to create social change for animals using visual culture and art. So I teach at Brock University. I'm actually chair of the art department right now. And I teach a course called Picturing Animals, in which we sort of explore these ideas in, in significant detail about art um, advocacy and how it has functioned to kind of normalize certain behaviors towards animals or attitudes towards animals, but also how it can be flipped on its head and challenged some of the dominant norms or no dominant ideas that we have about other species. Yeah, so how did you sort of start developing that idea? I mean, it's, where do you begin to look for, for information? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So my current larger research project right now, I'm, I'm actually writing a book at the moment on the history of animal advocacy and how early um, campaigners and reformers used art and visual culture. So I'm really focusing on the time period from about the 1880s to the First World War, that late 19th century, early 20th century. And as I was digging around in archives, looking at this material for my research, I started to notice a very strong pattern towards humane education. And when I began this research project, I actually didn't know much about the history of humane education. I mean, I had heard of it, but I didn't realize that the roots had stretched back this far. Um, so I found more and more material on this. And not only did I just find it interesting from a researcher perspective that there was this dominant thread of humane education, but I also noticed right away that a very big part of this humane education curriculum had to do with art and visual culture. So teachers were being told things like, um, you should have certain posters with certain artworks in your classroom to help foster these feelings of kindness and compassion towards other species um, in children. So I started thinking about art in that context of humane education. And right around the same time, I was put in contact with Carolyn Mullen, the founder of the National Museum of Animals for Animals and Society, excuse me, um, who, of course, ended up hosting the exhibit that I um, curated. And Carolyn and I had some great chats about the importance of humane education today, um, how that is really still a very significant part of what we need to be doing with um, not only young people, but with everyone. But also, she's very, um, like I am, uh, concerned about remembering the history of our movement, remembering the history of um, animal activism, of advocacy campaigns, education campaigns. And so we just started talking back and forth about how this would actually make a really great exhibit. There's just so many layers. It's, it's a really rich history, a really rich topic. Um, lots of, of artifacts to work with, but also just lots of stories that I think need to be told, um, stories that many people have never heard of. I hadn't until I started doing this research, that's for sure. Something that I find curious, um, I, I was always a fan of Jack London books growing up. Um, and my father was uh, into the old black and white westerns and stuff. So I was exposed a lot to Davy Crockett and things like that. And today you still see that reference to that time of the, um, you know, the trapper, the hunter being the the brave man out in the wilds. Does that still contrast 
with what we're seeing for humane education through art now? Uh, like, how does that dichotomy work? Yeah, that's a, a really good point, and it's interesting you raised um, Jack London because, of course, in around the time of the First World War, around 1918, the first Jack London Club was actually formed in Massachusetts, and this was a club um, of young, again, directed for young people, trying to sort of protest against the use of animals in entertainment. Um, and this, of course, is an issue that we continue to work with today as activists. So I think there's an interesting dichotomy there, as you said, between this sort of perception of, of these quote-unquote wild animals and the hunters and the trappers out there that are sort of engaging with them on various levels as being this sort of entity separate from the rest of society. And there's some sort of mythology that I think we're still living with that legacy today. Why is it important that people see the way this human-animal bond and humane education has grown over that time period? I think it's really important as activists to understand our roots. I think it's really important to see what's gone before. I think in some ways we we tend to have a bit of an arrogance as activists in the 21st century. We think maybe we've invented some of these concepts. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize the very brave men and women and indeed children in a lot of cases that really stood up for animals in a time when this wasn't really on the table for discussion. I mean, today in 2014, we often get called radical or strange if we speak up for animals. But imagine in 1888 what that must have felt like to stand up and, and speak up for animals. So I think it's important that we, you know, honor that legacy. Maybe they do thing or did things differently than we might do now, perhaps. Um, society is very different uh, today than it was in the 1880s. But certainly there is a, a legacy that we are living with as activists. It also, just on a practical level, um, it makes sense to analyze their strategies. What worked, what didn't work. Um, they were very sophisticated in their use of images, I think. And I think it sort of is important for us to take a look, a closer look at what they did and, and what we can learn from them. Is that really what you're hoping to achieve through this exhibit? To sort of show the past and how it developed so that we may continue to grow into the future? I think the goal for this exhibit were twofold. Um, first of all, like I said, I want these stories to be told. Um, a lot of the names, these pioneers in humane education, are not names that we know today. Um, and so I, I really feel that their stories need to be told. They have done incredible groundbreaking work, and I want people to know about it. But secondly, I, I'm hoping, and this has been happening based on the feedback we've had with the exhibit, is that if people sit down and look through the exhibit text or look at the images, they may also sort of translate some of these lessons or ideas to their own lives today. So maybe they will start acting more compassionately to other species, or maybe they'll think differently about the relationships they have with animals, or maybe they'll be inspired to, you know, lead a protest or a demonstration, just like some of these people did back in previous decades and centuries. I'd also wonder, uh, and I think you kind of touched on this already, that seeing that this is not new, that this is not unusual or strange, that people are compassionate towards animals and want change for them, may actually help people who are maybe on the fence about their positions on these uh, these issues. I agree. I think that legacy and that history is really important. And, and for some people, maybe, knowing that that legacy stretches back to the 19th century might give it sort of a, I don't know, sense of legitimacy or something that they might be looking for before getting involved. Some people maybe are cautious about jumping into what they perceive as a radical new movement when they learn that, in fact, it's not that new. Um, maybe, it, I don't know, it might provide some sort of comfort for some, some people to get involved. Definitely. 
And how can, how can people learn more about this? This, uh, this to me is very, very, while specific in one sense, it's also a very broad subject. Uh, so how can people learn more about it and get involved with it? You're, you're right. It's very, very broad. Um, one of the challenges we had with this exhibit was narrowing it down to a manageable amount of information. Um, there was so much that we couldn't include and didn't include just to keep it um, a manageable topic and a manageable um, experience for the viewers. But if you go to the um, exhibit website, which is just BeKindExhibit.org, or you can also find it through the museum's website, the National Museum of Animals and Society, there is um, a tab on the right-hand side that says Resources. And you can click on that, and there are links to organizations that do continue to work on humane education today. Um, it's very much a current topic still. It didn't, has not at all disappeared. Um, places like the Humane Society University or the Institute for Humane Education offer courses. A lot of them are online courses, so you, you can take them from anywhere. There's also just resources for reading, pamphlets, that kind of thing. Also, you'll see on the, the exhibit website, there's a list of books. Um, they're really good introductory books to this topic, the history of humane education or the history of animal advocacy in North America, for example. So there's a lot of really great resources out there. And I think that list is continuing to grow um, as more and more people are getting interested in this topic, learning about this topic and this history. We're seeing more things like conferences on the history of animal advocacy or scholarly papers or websites. So I think we're going to see even more work in this area definitely coming in the next little while. To learn more about this exhibit, visit museumofanimals.org. That's all for this week, folks. On behalf of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals, I'd like to thank you for joining us. I'd also like to extend our warmest thanks to Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.